All right, we are diving back into our Acts series. Um, if you've been around for a while, you know that I, or you just know me, I don't have the patience to be in one book for two, three, four years. That's not going to happen here. Nothing wrong with it. Although I, I do think we're blessed from being in different, uh, different genres uh, in the course of a year. So we got to walk through some selected passages in Proverbs this summer and look at two books from a high altitude. And now we're walking back into Acts, which we will do every August to Advent until we finish the book. I have no, no idea how long that'll take. I probably could figure that out, but I haven't yet. So we're picking up now where we left off in November of last year. We are in Acts 6 and we're beginning a, a three-week walk through Stephen's life. Um, Stephen is, of course, the very first Christian martyr. And before we dive in, it'd probably be helpful to give you a brief, uh, brief update on Acts, like where, where we are in Acts. So Acts is a book written by Luke. Uh, Luke writes more of the New Testament than anybody else. A lot of people attribute that to Paul because he has a lot of letters, but there are actually more words from Luke than any other person. And Luke has two big books, one on Jesus and one on the church, basically. This is the one on church, and he's, he's writing it to a man named Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus was. He's probably a, a Roman man uh, with some, some clout in that culture. And, and kind of, in the back of my head, I kind of think of him as Paul's defense attorney because this would be such a good information for whoever, ha whoever has to defend Paul in Rome. But we don't know. But this guy, Theophilus, is asking one very important question. And he, this book is answering one very important question. How did the small Jewish sect in Jerusalem become this new thing conquering the whole empire? How, how did this happen? And Luke is answering that question. And in short, you can see in Acts 1.8, his answer is because Jesus said so. Acts 1.8, this is kind of the thesis for the whole book. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So you can see how we got the, the really creative series title to the ends of the earth. But what this letter does is it follows that thesis. We see the gospel go to Jerusalem and then Judea, Samaria, Samaria and then to Rome, which at that point, Rome connects to all of the known Greek-speaking world. So it is now going to the ends of the earth. So John, uh, Luke's saying, how did this happen? Well, it happened because Jesus said it would happen. And now let me show you this happening. So we're jumping in back into uh, Acts chapter, chapter 6. We met Stephen uh, in our last in our last little passage back in November, and Stephen was chosen to help with the distribution of the food to the Hellenistic widows. Many people consider this the first, the first group of deacons in the church. But Stephen's behind-the-scenes quiet ministry uh, quickly becomes very public. The pressure rises against Stephen because of the message that he is proclaiming to be true, and then in two weeks we are going to see Stephen killed, the first person again that we, that we know of who is martyred for their, feet, their faith in Jesus Christ. And in God's providence, it's always interesting to me to see, I, I lay out these kind of the year sermons uh, in December. So in December 2020, we, I laid out everything. We made some little changes along the way, but this, this didn't change. It was determined that for the next three weeks, we'd be looking at the life of Stephen. And sometimes it's just really interesting how whatever it is that's going on the day kind of lines up to, with what we're studying because we're studying the first Christian martyr. And now the world's eyes are on Afghanistan as the Taliban takes over 
over and we're hearing these horrible reports of whole Christian families being slaughtered just because they believe in Jesus. And we're hearing reports that there are maybe possibly likely hundreds or thousands more who are going to lose their life because they live there and they believe in Jesus. And so over the next six, excuse me, next three weeks, we get to look at the first Christian martyr. We get to understand some things about him. We get to understand how to better pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and other parts of the world where they're, they're literally killed for their faith. But as we look at this, I want to ask one really specific question. How is it that someone can be so sure of Jesus that they would willingly give their life for him? That's what I want to look at this morning. And I want, to, I want to answer that question by looking at the false allegations that come up against Stephen. Then I want to look at what the truth is to those allegations. And then we're going to answer the question, what makes Stephen so sure that he would willingly give his life for Jesus Christ? So first, the false allegations. So we, we've learned a little bit about Stephen back in the last passage in Acts chapter 6. We learn more about him in this, in this chapter, in this part of the chapter. In verse 5, we see that he was full of faith. He was full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 tells us that he was full of grace and power. Stephen was doing great works in Jerusalem. Luke is very specific to say that he's doing signs and wonders, which is very important because this is the first, not only is he the first martyr, he's the first person who's not Jesus and his immediate disciples to do signs and wonders. So this is, this is a big deal. And then in verse 10, we, we read that he is full of wisdom. So you put all this together and this man is a threat to, to a group of people. He is a threat because he is a follower of Jesus Christ and he is proclaiming that Jesus has resurrected and he is the fulfillment of all the Jewish scriptures. And then, of course, that message is accompanied by these miracles. So, you know, people could get by with Jesus having certain miracles. You know, may, if they disagreed with him, maybe it was a trick. Maybe it was really of the devil. He was accused of his works being from the devil. And then, I mean, maybe his immediate disciples learned his tricks or were also demon-possessed. But now you have regular people, like regular average Joes proclaiming Jesus resurrected and signs and wonders are accompanying these works. And we're going to look more at signs and wonders as we walk through the book. God can do signs and wonders in any place at any time. But what's going on here is in a specific setting and in a unique time to accomplish something very specific. As the gospel goes into places for the very first time, these signs and these wonders accompany the message. So, signs and wonders happen today. But I would not call it prescriptive for uh, all of believers or even deacons for that matter. Um, and so who were these people who were coming up with these false allegations? They were people of different synagogues. They were disputing with Stephen. And Luke is very clear to communicate that these weren't Jews who were from Jerusalem. These were Jews who didn't live in Jerusalem. So these, he, he, he names them here. These are Greek-speaking Jews, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, Jews from Cilicia and Asia. So why does Luke go so far as to say, these are Jews, but they're not the religious elite who live there, who we've been dealing with. This is a new set. These are just average Jews from other synagogues outside of Israel. And Luke doesn't specifically say this, but in my interaction with people, when, when you get somebody who lives outside of their culture, they tend to become not more loose in their culture, but more rigid in their culture. 
So I, I, my understanding from British friends is that Brits who live in Great Britain uh, don't, aren't really serious about tea time, you know, regardless of what we hear. But you get Brits who live outside of Great Britain, and they tend to be more r- rigorous with observing tea time. Um, what would some other examples be? When Angela and I speak in, uh, at, at Christian conferences in areas of the country that are more theologically and politically liberal or progressive, the Christians who show up tend to be more theologically and politically conservative than in the Bible Belt. Because you've taken them maybe a little bit outside of our comfort zone and, and you get a little more rigid with what, you, with what you believe because you're not surrounded by it. There's a reason that when Americans travel overseas, Americans who never eat McDonald's will stand in a long line at a train station to have a greasy, plasticky taste of home. So I, I, I can't, I don't know this for sure, but I think something is hap- similar is happening here. Luke is saying these are Jews who live in pagan, Roman, Greek-speaking places. And these are Jews who take their customs even more seriously in some ways than the Jews who live in Jerusalem. And the two customs that they take most seriously are the Mosaic Law and the Temple. Those are, those are two of the most important parts of Judaism. And these Jews take these things particularly seriously. So they're challenging Stephen on his claims. And, and what Jesus said about him being the fulfillment of the Mosaic Law and, and him being the fulfillment of the Temple and it appears that the Holy Spirit's giving Stephen a lot of wisdom. I mean, they're just throwing questions at him in public. He has an answer for them all. He's full of grace, full of power, full of knowledge, full of the Holy Spirit. And they don't know what to do. And, and remember, this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. When his disciples are opposed, and, and in some cases when they are facing the moment of their death, Jesus in Luke 21 says, Settle it therefore in your minds not to mediate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. I mean, it really seems to me that what Jesus said, we're seeing happen with Stephen. And it's good, I think, for all of us to kind of pause and ask, what was it that these Jews were so scared of? What was so threatening about this, this ministry, this this. Um, this gospel that Stephen is proclaiming. So many Jewish leaders, they did understand his teaching to be some sort of new sect or new uh, religion or just some giant shift in, in God's plan for his people, an, an, an errant man-made shift. Not understanding that what was happening was all a part of a divinely, sovereignly laid plan that has been going on since the beginning of time. Jesus isn't a shift. Jesus is the culmination And he's not only the next step, but the culmination in God's plan. So the last trip I went on, this is kind of how I think about it. We had, there were like four legs to get to our destination. You know, we had to fly from from Orlando to another country and then get on another, go to from that airport to a smaller airport to fly in the jungle. Then we get, get on this little cab to take us to the bay. And then a boat took us around where we were staying. So no leg of this journey was a change in our destination. Every leg was a part of a well-laid-out plan to get us where we were going. That's what a lot of the, the Jewish people, the Israelites, did not understand when it came to Jesus. 
And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that, that's who we've been looking at. We see they, they looked at Jesus and they were afraid because they were losing their power. You know, they were the ones in charge here and Jesus is challenging that. But the Jews that we're interacting with now, that's not them. They don't have power in their society. They live outside of Israel. They are just faithful Jews in cities all around the Roman Empire. They weren't worried about losing power. They were worried about losing their worldview. They had a worldview that gave them identity, that gave them uh, a sense of security and protection. It made them comfortable. They were afraid of losing the thing that made them comfortable and secure. But by not letting go of that thing, they were actually missing out on God's greatest blessing to them. So let me ask, are there ways that we today are holding on to things that are known and comfortable and not embracing things that might be more uncomfortable and scary, but in the uncomfortable and scary is where God wants to bless us the most. I mean, I think that's that at the heart of these, these people who are opposing Jesus, I think they were scared. They were scared of losing what was most comfortable in their worldview that gave them security and identity and they held on to it at the expense of what God wanted for them the most. So these Jews, they, they can't argue with Stephen. <laughs> They've tried that in public. That did not go well. So the next best thing is create false accusations. So they created these false accusations and they knew that, that they, couldn't, they couldn't or weren't willing to bring these false accusations to Stephen. So they go to the people who do have power and they start seeding these false accusations in the people who are important, in the religious leaders, so that they can oppose G uh, Stephen and his claims about Jesus. And there are two specific allegations. First, they claimed that Jesus said he would destroy the temple. Second, they claimed that Jesus would change the customs of Moses. So remember, what are the two most important things to these people? Mo the Mosaic law, the customs of Moses, and the temple. And, and they're saying that Stephen is saying that Jesus was going to destroy all of that. Those are the false accusations. And I do want to, again, I just try to put ourselves in, in their situation, that, that would have been scary. If you're one of these Jews who are just hearing these false allegations, so I'm not talking about the ones who are propagating them yet. If you're hearing these false allegations, that would be scary. That, that would be very scary. Like, oh, oh is, is Jesus coming to change everything we hold dear? But that's not a reason to continue to carry on what they're saying. But we're going to get back to that. But so that you have those people who are scared, who are hearing this message, but then you have the people who are actually propagating this message. You have people who are, <laughs> they're propagating this message in a defense of the Mosaic law. And in doing so through false accusation, they're actually breaking the Mosaic law. So, I mean, you can see there, there's an agenda here that's more important. Their comfort and their security in the Mosaic law is actually more important to them than the Mosaic law itself. Because what does the Mosaic law say about false witnesses and false accusations? Exodus 23, 1 and 2. You shall not spread a false report. I mean, how com committed can they actually be to this Mosaic law? You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many who do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. They're breaking the Mosaic law in their defense of the Mosaic law. 
And before we move on, I do want to just make some, some observations about false accusations. I mean, it's so important that God would clearly address it in the Mosaic Law. And here it is coming up again right here. It's contributing ultimately to the death of Stephen. So let's make a few observations about false accusations. First, false accusations can tend to come when we've lost an argument and we're mad and we don't know what else to do. That's certainly the case here. John Stott says, well, when arguments fail, mud has often seemed an excellent substitute. So they can't argue the point. They're upset. Secondly, false accusations tend to be things that are brought about in secret. So the accusers, they've done their best to argue with Stephen in the light. Now they have to resort, because things didn't go their way, to seed these false ideas with other people in the dark. So accusations that are spoken or received secretly, not in the light, not to the person about whom they are made, these are not to be accusations that are passed on or listened to, because they are either gossip at best if they are true and slander at worst if they aren't. Which brings me to my third and last observation. And again, I, I want to give these believers, sorry, not the believers, I want to give these, these Jews who are hearing these false accusations, I want to give them the benefit of doubt and say they believed them. Okay, they shouldn't have, but let's say they believed these false accusations. Their spreading of it, even in their belief that they were true, was sinful and contributed to the death of a saint. And one of the, I'm curious, how many of you have seen the ESPN 30 for 30 short called Judging Jewel? No one in the first service had seen this. I'm, no one in the second service has seen this. All right, I've given you all something to do with 25 minutes of your afternoon. Judging Jewel is about Richard Jewel. You may remember him from the Atlanta uh, Olympic Park bombing in 1996. He was the security officer who found the bomb and, and really in heroic fashion, he began to clear people out of the area. He would bring people out, he'd go back in. He'd clear people out, he'd go back in. And then the bomb went off, but hundreds of people were probably spared their lives because he kept going back in. Well, he's regarded as a hero for a hot minute until the Atlanta Journal-Constitution realizes that the FBI is also considering him as a suspect. And so the Constitution, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, begins. they publish an article that says not only is he a suspect, he probably did it. And, I mean, this is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It happened in Atlanta. They would have the best sources. So all of America believes this. And he's, he's actually innocent. But he is treated for months as if he did it. I mean, he can't leave his house. He can't make any money. He can't pay his bills. He doesn't know what to do. And then finally, when it does come out that he's innocent... It doesn't matter. His life is ruined. Nobody wants to hire him. The, the career he had hoped for in, 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 um, in law enforcement would never happen. Uh, when he walked into a restaurant, not only could he not walk in like you or me at a minimum, he couldn't walk in like the hero that he really was. His life was destroyed because people heard a false allegation. And by people, all of us, I remember it, I believed he was guilty. We believed these things and propagated them, justifying it because we thought it was true. That's what happened here, and that is not something that we should do. When we hear an allegation, 
We let it be, and we say, go to that person. If we have a question, we go to that person. None of that was happening here. So what was a theological conversation turned into gossip, and then slander, and then as we're going to see in two weeks, violence. So if that's, those are the false claims, Jesus is going to tear down the temple, and he's going to really destroy uh, everything that Moses handed down to us. What is it that Jesus actually said? At Jesus' trial... Uh, Something similar was said in Mark 14. Someone testifying against Jesus says, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another. Not made with hands. So, Jesus did say some things about the temple. But what he was saying was very different than what he's being accused of saying. What is it that Jesus actually said? Well, let's go back to John's recording of of this actual incident. When Jesus says this thing that everybody's now up in arms about. This is John 2, 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? And here's the clarity to the whole situation, verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So it's timely that we're doing this right after we looked at the whole book of Exodus last week because we got a look at the temple system. So so the temple all throughout scripture is God's meeting place with man. And we said, you know, it's not like God's little home. That's where he is and that's where he can stay safe from sin. It's actually quite the opposite. That's the sovereignly ordained safe place for God's holiness to interact with sinful people in a way that will not obliterate all of us. And so the temple system, uh, it begins in the Garden of Eden. God and man dwelled without any kind of problem because man had not sinned yet. And then we pick the temple system back up in the tabernacle, which we talked about a lot last week. And then the Israelites settle into the promised land. They settle Jerusalem and they make a more permanent temple. That, and that temple is the one that the Jews are saying Jesus said he was going to destroy. But Jesus isn't saying that. He was talking about him. Now remember, Jesus is the logical progression. He is the new temple. In Ezekiel, in times of Ezekiel, God removed his presence from the temple in Jerusalem never to return because of the sins of Israel. Now God is meeting with man in a new way. He God, the second person of the Trinity, takes on flesh. And now Jesus' earthly ministry is a new type of temple, God's meeting place with man. So there's a whole misunderstanding of what the temple was in the first place. And this is what Jesus meant in Matthew 12 when he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. So when Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again, He's talking about his body, not that building, and that's exactly what happens. So this is why at Jesus' death, the curtain was ripped to reveal once and for all, that's not the, the temple system that we have anymore. That temple system was inadequate to deal with your sin. The problem wasn't the temple, the problem was you. So now we have Jesus, Jesus who is the perfect high priest, who will intercede for us at all times. No more need for a temple. Jesus, who is the eternal sacrifice for all of our sins, past, present, and future. No need for a temple. Jesus, who is himself the mercy seat. No more need for a temple. Jesus, 
who we go to now to see the glory of God. No more need for a temple. And this is why John, in his future revelation, uh, vision in Revelation 21, he said, And I saw no temple in the city. Talking about the, the building. I didn't see one of those. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Because one day, we, the God's meeting place with God and man will be together in eternity when sin has been removed because of the work of Jesus Christ. John Piper, I think, aptly points out that in, in Acts 6-7, we read Luke saying that a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I mean, it's not just average Joes. The priests were coming to faith. Because they realize they're all out of a job. <laughs> There's no more need for them in the temple system. And not only do they, do they realize that Jesus now does what they oversaw, but they realize Jesus does it much better. And Jesus doesn't sleep. And Jesus has no shortcomings. Jesus is not sinful. So he is the new temple in this context. All right, so that's the clarity on this accusation about the law. I'm sorry, the temple. Now, let's gain some clarity on what what Jesus said about the law. So they were accusing Stephen of teaching that Jesus will change the customs delivered to the Jews by Moses. And again, Jesus didn't change in anything. This is one more step, the culminating step of God's sovereign plan here. And so Jesus addressing this very issue in Matthew 5, 17, says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. So these, these false accusations, and, and I, I think it's fair to say most all false accusations, they're a false twist on a true statement. So, you know, we, 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 when we're going to make a false accusation, we don't want to be outed in it. So we, we tend to not say something that's just crazy talk. You know, we, we take a truth and we twist it just enough to where it, it hits the person we want to hit and it, and it, and it justifies or accomplishes the means that we want to see happen, the ends, excuse me, that we want to see happen. And this is nothing new. When you go back all the way to the Garden of Eden, what was Satan doing? He wasn't coming and bringing this total lie. He was coming and bringing the truths that God had revealed to them. Just a little twist. Did God really say it like this? Did he really? Maybe it's just so that he doesn't want you to know this. And we're still dealing with that today. Stephen and Luke, I think they both knew that, that Jesus was going to radically disrupt the lives of everyone, but specifically these Jews. But the way he was disrupting their lives, it wasn't, as they said, against the custom of Moses in the temple. It wasn't against the Jews. It was a fulfillment of the customs of Moses and the temple. And it was a global expansion of what God had been doing among the Jews. So this isn't against it. It isn't a shift. This is an expansion and a continuation of what God had always planned to bless all the nations through Abraham. Who we looked at two weeks. Last week, excuse me. So we see this pattern here, and it started by Jesus, it's continued by the disciples, and now Stephen. This isn't something different. It's really rooted in the Old Testament. 
I mean, it's deeply rooted in the Testament. So they're, they're teaching the Old Testament the way that it should be taught. Not the way that the Jews were teaching it at that time, but the way it should be taught as a roadmap to Jesus. They understood it now very clearly. That's the way they were teaching it. And it wasn't received very well. And if that weren't enough, there's this cherry on top at the very end of our passage. The last verse, verse 15, we read that, and gazing at him, that is Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And I know a lot of people, and I've probably been guilty of this too, we read this and we just stop and we pause and we're like, what does the face of an angel look like? Wouldn't that be great to see? And I would love to know what the face of an angel looks like, but that's not what Luke wants us to think about. Luke wants us to think about another person whose face shone after meeting with God. Who was that person? Moses. Moses met with God and his face shone. So I think this is a very deliberate, affirming action by God to take this guy who's being accused of denigrating and tearing down the law and cause him to shine in the same way that the man who was given the law did. So it's really, I mean, Luke understands what's going on. This is deeply rooted in the the Old Testament in God's continuing plan. And this gospel that Jesus brought and Stephen is proclaiming, it is not a man-made message. It is not a shift. It is not in contradiction to the Jewish faith, but it fulfills it. And it is an affirmation at this very special time and place in redemption history that, yes, this is what everything has been pointing towards. This is what we have been anticipating. So that's a little clarity on the false accusations. And now lastly, I want to answer the question that we asked in the very beginning. What makes someone so sure about Jesus that they would willingly give their lives for him? The reason Stephen was so sure, and I think the reason so many other martyrs are so willing to give their life for Jesus is because they are now temples themselves. So there's this whole misunderstanding of what's going on with this temple theme. What made Stephen so sure and so wise and so powerful and so full of grace, the reason he could speak with such wisdom is because he is now full of the Holy Spirit and he is now the fulfillment of the temple system as we know it thus far. You may remember that when Jesus had resurrected, he said that I need to ascend so that something else can happen. It's very important that I leave you so that someone else comes to you. This is uh, John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So this is what makes Stephen so sure and so bold because Jesus was a temple, the meeting place of God and man, but he's very limited in what he can do because he's physically incarnate here. He cannot be with everyone at every time in every possible way. But when he ascended and sent his Holy Spirit to dwell inside all of us, now that is a temple system that doesn't worry about time, that doesn't worry about space that is able to minister to all God's people at every single time without any shortcoming whatsoever. Stephen understood that he was, he was now a temple full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus in Stephen changing his hearts and his desires and his priorities. 
is the reason that Stephen and so many others willingly give their lives for Jesus. And I don't think we can really understand Stephen over the next few weeks without understanding that he has become the very thing that the Jews are so worried that he is going to destroy. And he has become a better form of it. They're holding on to this big pile of stones that no longer has any power, and in doing so, they are resisting God's greatest blessing for humanity. They're becoming temples. They're believing in Jesus and having his spirit reside inside them in a more significant way than it ever resided in the temple. So, what are ways that we do the same thing? What are ways that we hold on to things that God wants to take from us? And he wants to take them from us so that he can give us something a lot better, but we're We don't want to let go of what's comfortable and what's known and what gives us security and identity. We don't want to let go of that. But God wants us to let go of those things so that we might have something more. So that we might have security and identity and comfort and hope in Jesus alone. If we believe in Jesus, we have the same source. We have the same power. We have the same Holy Spirit as Stephen did. And I'm not talking about something as little and small, little, as small as miracles. Okay, the miracles are great. But what's going on in Stephen's heart is way bigger than being able, being able to perform signs and wonders. The spirit inside of him, it just made him sure. He understands that there is no challenge in this life that will not be fixed in the next. And I, think, I think Stephen supernaturally understood that where he was walking, Jesus had already walked. Jesus had been accused of of false teaching. Jesus had been falsely accused. Jesus had been told, stop this or you will die. And Jesus willingly gave his life that we might all have eternal life. Jesus willingly allowed the destruction of the temple, his body, that we might all receive the Holy Spirit and become temples in this world. Stephen understood this. He knew the gospel changes the way that we prioritize things, even the prioritization of living, living physically now in this life. There's a 20th century missionary named Jim Elliott who was martyred by the people he was trying to reach, and he very famously wrote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. There's something about the ministry of the Holy Spirit inside of us that shows us this. You, you, can't, you can't believe this or teach this or practice this unless God's Spirit is dwelling inside of you and calling you and changing you and ministering to you. So, are you walking in the power of the Holy Spirit? Because you can be a believer and have the Holy Spirit in your life and not have the surety that Stephen and others have. You can be a believer, walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, but still living in sin and not ever experience the the assurance that God wants you to experience because you are now a temple. So Paul says, are you walking in the Holy Spirit? Are you filled with the power of the Holy Spirit? Which basically means, are you daily confessing your sin and turning Jesus? Confessing your sin and turning to Jesus. 
Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to have his way with you, to change you into what he wants us to be, conformed into the image of the Son? And if the answer is yes, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a temple, then you will be changed in every conceivable way. And it's going to hurt, and it's going to be scary. There are things in your mind right now. I, I, I know what it is the Holy Spirit's telling me. I don't know what he's telling you. Only you do. But often it's scary. Thinking of letting go of something that he might give us something better. This is why Stephen was so full of grace, wisdom, power, knowledge, scripture. It's because he was full of the Holy Spirit. He himself was a temple. And so over the next few weeks, as we look at the life of Stephen, my hope now, I didn't have this hope, in December because I didn't know what would be going on is it would really help us to understand what's going on in Afghanistan better they would help us to pray for those brothers and sisters better of course we're going to pray that their lives would be spared but in two weeks we're going to know should their lives not be spared there are other things that we can pray for as a believer faces imminent death because of their faith I'm looking forward to the series and I hope that it blesses you as much as it has been blessing me let's pray God, we are so thankful for your son and that you call us into a relationship not through guilt or command, but through love and grace and really just changing our heart, changing our desires, changing our priorities. And this morning we lift up our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and other parts of the world that we just don't even know to pray for. And we ask that you would spare their lives. But more than that, we ask that you would sustain their faith. We ask that they would have a peace that surpasses understanding. And we ask if that moment comes, that you would give them all the assurance and hope that, as we will see in two weeks, that Stephen had. And God, I pray as we look at Stephen and consider our Afghan brothers and sisters, that it, would, that it would be a sober reality check for us. That we would see the ways that we compromise our faith and desire to walk with you and to be true to you because of these faithful brothers and sisters who give everything for you. So we love you and we ask this in the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.